All right, so how are we going to introduce me as the new co-host? You can't just have suddenly a new co-host, right? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a little bit. Um, how's this? I'll say I'll say you were sent over from corporate. Right, because they felt there wasn't enough representation of white nerdy guys on podcasts. That's that's exactly right. Though that kind of makes me the villain though, doesn't it? A little bit. Like like I'm some kind of suit here to run everyone's fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, okay, so what if I say I'm a time traveler sent from the immediate past? I don't even know what that means. A long lost son? Yeah, you're a little too old for that. Uh, oh, I got it. I got it. You're my slightly misshapen clone. A little too pretty for that. What if we just don't mention it at all? Like I just jump in as the host. So we just do the intro and we just pretend like you've been here all along? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. It'll never work. It'll be it'll be like one of those sitcoms where all of a sudden a different actress is playing the daughter or something. Well, uh, okay. But I'm sure we can figure it out before it airs. Yeah, we'll figure out something. Yeah. Hello, you are listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 1. The second episode. Welcome to episode one of Denver Orbit, the audio magazine featuring voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I'm Ryan Connell. And I'm Josh Madison. Before we, not Josh Madison, that's not, I'm not Josh <laughs> Madison. And I'm Josh Madison. Before we begin, uh, we've got a few things to mention. We've got a Facebook page now at facebook.com slash Denver Orbit. And we're on Instagram. We've joined all the millennials over there. Uh, and we're at Denver underscore Orbit there. And we're really still trying to capture and build a community here. So if you've got an interesting story or some kind of sound piece or song or comedy bit or even just a good story idea that you'd like us to investigate, drop us a line at denverorbit at gmail.com or go to the webpage at denverorbit.com and fill out the contact form there. Um, let's go get to the show. What's on the dock for today? So first, we have a story that Ron Doyle actually sent us over from the Narrators podcast. Uh, that's a story from Laura Condi. And then we have a song from the band Somerset Catalog. And then what's our final thing? And we've also got advice for you from Mary McHugh. So let's get going. We'll start with this story from Laura Condi that was recorded live at the Denver Narrators. Your first storyteller of the night has a very bizarre distinction. She is, this is her first time telling a story here in Denver. Uh, she just moved here from San Diego. She is a writer and a uh, recovering comedian. Um, she is a, a na San Diego native, and just by coincidence, she shares the distinction of being the very first storyteller at our San Diego show when it debuted in October. So I'm really excited. She just moved here, like we got her. I, I'm already poaching from the other show, which is awesome. Um, uh, please give a warm welcome to Laura Condi. So I didn't meet my friend Cad in the most conventional way that you'd meet a friend, like through school, a job, or mutual friends. 
She was the daughter of a legendary Hollywood screenwriter, and coincidentally, I was working a job delivering cupcakes to Hollywood screenwriters and their daughters. She would fly in from San Francisco and spend most of her days holed up in opulent hotel rooms at the Beverly Hilton or the Standard. We'd tour local bars and clubs, get kicked out for getting too drunk, then return to the hotel, order room service, and smoke cigarettes on the balcony, sitting there wasted and laughing about nothing until we passed out. Eventually, I learned that smoking cigarettes and laughing at nothing were a great way to stall maturity in your mid-20s, but it felt like the most glamorous years of my life. But being around cats sometimes, I felt totally out of place. I'm the daughter of two blue-collar Southern Californians, and I was hanging out with a girl who had known nothing but billion-dollar luxury her whole life. I worked minimum wage, but as soon as I punched out, I'd lose my delivery uniform and hop into hotel elevators with Hollywood moguls to find Cat in a presidential suite. Once on my way to the hotel, I asked her where I should park my car, a shitty Ford Focus with a passenger side mirror duct taped on. She said, oh, just get it valeted and charge it to the room, hiding my sheer embarrassment of the idea I deflected. But isn't that expensive? And after that, I stopped asking questions. And I specifically avoided a question like, why is this girl hanging out with me? In early October, Kat flew into town heartbroken over a guy. Her status afforded her opportunities to have lunch with all sorts of celebrities. Such a lunch and such a heartbreak occurred after she met Tim Armstrong, the lead singer and guitarist for punk bands like Operation Ivy, Rancid, and The Transplants. Well, some would say punk, it's arguable. <laughs> to Kat, he came off as this tattooed, hardcore boy with a dangerous past. To me and everyone else, he came off as a poser, trying to, too hard to impress people after Spin Magazine branded him a sellout. He was always dropping names of people he worked with and ended each sentence with the phrase, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Regardless of his street cred or lack thereof, after several lunch and dinner dates, Kat developed a horribly intense and delusional love affair with the balding punk rocker 14 years older than her. I tried to be supportive of what it I tried to be supportive of it, but totally saw it for what it was. When Kat confessed her crush to him, the only thing Tim could confess back was that he was interested in writing a screenplay, which had been the reason for their dates. Turns out, Tim Armstrong was a shitty opportunist looking for a connection, not romance. I attentively listened to her stories of heartbreak and woe, as any good friend would, especially a friend who's getting to crash at her all-inclusive luxury hotel with her. I can tell you, it's easier to wipe away your friend's snot and tears when it's on the Four Seasons immaculate thousand-thread count sheets, cushioned with goose-down feather pillows, surrounded by champagne bottles that cost more than I make in a single paycheck. But I wanted to hear her hate on him, because... By comparison, stories of his insincerity made me feel like less of a fraud. At least he was quasi-famous and she could relate to that. I felt like a nobody clinging to this glamorous Hollywood lifestyle of hers. But again, I didn't ask any questions. For this particular case of heartache, our standard routine of getting drunk at Kettle One at Chateau Marmont wasn't going to do it for Kat. Instead, we turned to another one of Tim Armstrong's scorned lovers, who we found on the internet. Brody Dale, Tim's ex-wife and lead singer of The Distillers. She was punk. 
She had the face of Audrey Hepburn, but the prowess of Courtney Love. Well, Courtney Love minus all the messy heroin withdrawals. If there was one woman who could save this weekend for us, it was her. And as fate would have it, she was playing a show 15 minutes away at a divey music club. We immediately threw on our torn fishnets and red lipstick, got to the club, double-fisted beers, and crammed ourselves into the crowd to as close to the stage as possible. For the next 40 minutes, we sang, sweat, and screamed along with Brody, wanting so badly to be her and not the confused identity crisis having 20-somethings we knew we really were. We both left the club, our feet barely touching the ground and our faces practically melting off from all the punk rock girl intensity. We got in the car and simultaneously screamed at each other about our favorite parts of the show. I kept blabbering as Kat rolled down the window and lit a cigarette. Her excitement had quieted to what looked like inspiration and then a mischievous smile. A silent concentration came over her and I knew the look on her face. As a girl who's also been heartbroken and drunk in the alleys of Silver Lake on a weeknight, I knew the look on her face. Before she could even say it, we were in his neighborhood anyway, so we were gonna drive by Tim Armstrong's house. Because that's totally what you do when some guy doesn't return your calls, but you know where he lives, and you're drunk and psychotic enough to drive by for no reason other than you can, and you deserve it because you gave him the best years of your life, or like, you didn't, but you just watched a woman named Brody who did on stage for 40 minutes, and it was nothing short of a religious experience. That's just what you do. That's totally what you do. I drove and Kat navigated the closest ways to Tim's house in between furious puffs of her cigarette and dramatically tossing her short black hair. Once we got to his house, she got quiet, searching for any light inside. It was dark. He obviously wasn't home. I was still channeling Brody's adrenaline. With the engine still running, I looked over at Kat. Fuck him, I said. You know, fuck him. He's such a douche. He can choke on his stupid screenplay. She was silent, frozen, staring longingly at the house with her forgotten cigarette ashing on the side of my car door. Her face started to scrunch up the way it does when you want to keep it from crying. It was hopeless. Both of us were charged with this awesome feminist rage until this point when Kat melted back into this broken-hearted sap of a girl. I watched as this girl, who's had all the luxury in the world to make her happy, could barely muster a smile stuck in the memory of some shithead who made her feel obsolete. I saw her feel foolish and vulnerable, the way guys make you feel when they don't like you back. And there, in my shitty Ford Focus with the passenger side mirror duct taped on, I flashed back to all the guys that made me feel the same way. Like Todd in seventh grade, who called me a weird albino when I told him I liked him. <laughs> or Adam, when I was 19, who told all his friends he'd rather eat shit than sleep with me. Or James, who actually did sleep with me, but then the next day went on stage and talked about it during his stand-up comedy routine, specifically how creepy it was that I had Incubus posters all over my room. <laughs> I didn't have the money, or the Hollywood heritage, or the elite status that Kat had but I knew how it felt to have your heart crushed. I was at a loss for comforting words, but I wanted to show her she wasn't alone because enough is enough, and it's time for all those shitheads to feel the wrath of what we feel. Brody Dale wouldn't stand for this shit, and neither would we. As a woman scorned, so help me God, I wanted to throw a grenade at the memory of all those guys and the house of Tim Armstrong that we sat parked out in front of. But I didn't have a grenade. 
I did, however, have inside me a certain feminine waste product that had been absorbing female potency similar to that of a grenade. And a brief moment of feminist insanity, I knew what needed to happen. I rolled down my window and told Kat to hold the steering wheel. With the car still running, I unzipped my pants. Lunging my hips forward and reaching down in my underwear, I pulled out my tampon and flung it into Armstrong's driveway. <laughs> my tampon hit the back window of his truck, stuck there for about four seconds, then slowly slipped down the truck bed with a couple tumbles and a triumphant pluck sound. As soon as we saw it land, I put my foot on the gas and drove away. We sped off, maniacally laughing and cussing and agreeing it was the single best thing either of us had ever seen in our entire lives. You just threw a bloody tampon at Tim Armstrong's house. Um, yeah, I did. I totally did. We said that about eight times. Thank you. You know what? Now I think it's time to listen to some music. Let's put on the song Holy Cigarettes by Somerset Catalog.
Finally, Mary McHugh dropped by to give out some advice. Very specific advice, as it turns out. I'll let her take it from here. Dear Mary Uary, I just discovered the essays of David Foster Wallace not too long ago. I'm late to the game, I know, but I find them good. Really good. Am I being duped? Should I worry about my ability to recognize good stuff? Are they too good to be true? Yours sincerely, Difficulty in Discerning. Dear Did, Oh, David Foster Wallace. I'm oft queried about this author's merit. He's been a favorite of the chic intelligentsia for some time now. My polite way of saying that, yes, you are late to the game. But it's all right, as long as you give the impression that you read these essays in elementary school. But that star status makes some people skeptical about a writer's actual ability to smith words. And just because you enjoy reading something certainly doesn't mean that it's any good. Otherwise, how would I explain the 67 Cat Companion mystery novels on my own bookshelves? It is a myth that one cannot judge a book by its cover. In fact, the literati and the no will tell you that it is the principal way of assessing a volume's value. The trick is to know what to look for on any given cover. Consider the Consider the Lobster Lobster. It's gross. David Foster Wallace even talks about how lobsters are just big, creepy sea bugs that people eat. But before you let that dissuade you from lauding the book, Remember that young, hip people are edgy and dark, and a big creepy sea bug may be just the ticket. Plus, the lobster looks like it's waving to you, and that's unquestionably hilarious. If there is a comely individual sitting across from you on the public transport vehicle, he or she will be tickled to see that crustacean salutation. I know I would. So yes, the conclusion must be that David Foster Wallace's essays are, in fact, good. Yours, Mary. Dear Mary Uary, 
So I was sitting on my dressing stool the other morning, and as I was putting on my nice new olive socks, I imagined a conversation that might be had sometime later that day. Hey, blank, nice socks. Yeah, I'm too poor for a sports car and too ugly for a trophy girlfriend. These socks are my midlife crisis. But no one noticed, so I didn't even get to feel good about myself choosing not to share that with a fellow employee. So I guess my question is, what's the best way to repress these sorts of thoughts so as they never interfere with my presentability again? Yours, Denver Area Rando Needing Emotional Reassurance. Dear Darner, I understand how you feel. I can't count the number of times I've A, put too much stock in my socks, and B, had inappropriately self-deprecating thoughts at work. But I must say, it's hard to believe that a fellow with his own bona fide dressing stool and slamming olive socks would have low self-esteem. Honestly, though, I think you are on the right track by soliciting attention via your ankles. That's considered a legitimate form of communication in Bulgaria, Luxembourg, and several Canadian provinces. But perhaps you just haven't gone far enough with it. Olive is wonderful and all, but try stepping up your game with argyle or an Easter bunny pattern. If that doesn't work, try pinning socks to the outside of your office door. Nothing says, I'm secure, like sock flags. And then, when the compliments and praise start rolling in, you can practice acting superior. Don't be surprised if you're offered a promotion. In the meantime, here are some low-cost alternative midlife crisis management tactics you can try in lieu of trophy people and bucket seats. Feng Shui your office. There are usually some good mirror and water sales this time of year. Get a goldfish. It will make you feel large and strong and free in comparison. Wear some eyeliner and dress like Adamant in 1981. You will get so laid. Good luck! Mary. And that's it for this week. Uh, the show was written and produced by Ryan Connell and me, Josh Madison. And I guess I, I edited it as well. If you like what you've heard so far, uh, make sure to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the show as well. If you're interested in hearing more storytelling from the narrators, you can go over to thenarrators.org and check out their page there. And of course, they're also on iTunes at The Narrators. They have shows from both Denver and from San Diego. If you're looking for more from Laura Condi, she has her own storytelling show called Storycraft, and they have shows occasionally around town. And finally, if you have problems of your own, and you probably do, maybe you'd like to reach out to Mary McHugh. You can find her on Twitter at Maryuary13. That's at M-A-R-Y-U-A-R-Y-13. And you can find links to her blog and her email there as well. And Denver Orbit is a bi-monthly podcast, so you'll hear from us again in about two weeks. In the meantime, keep riding that lightning. Uh, what? I thought I'd try a new catchphrase. We can make shirts. Uh, 
let's workshop it a little bit and see what we can come up with next time. All right. Mommy.